Jean Malat, a physician who hailed from France, visited the Philippines three times in the 1800s. During his stay in Manila, he fondly remembered the bells. At 6 o'clock p.m., he writes, a great peeling echoes throughout the city and everyone stops in their tracks. The carpenter laying down his hammer, the carriage driver pulling his horse up to a halt, the socialites passing across the lamplit escolta, pausing their conversation in midstream. It is the time of the Angelus. Throughout the city, only the murmuring of prayer can be heard before the city shakes itself back to life after a few minutes and the citizens of Manila turn to their neighbor to wish them buenas noches. Elsewhere in his extensive two-volume Philippine travelogue, Mala also writes of the little bells of the night sentinels that roamed around the city and its suburbs after the gates closed at 11 p.m. and of the great ringing from churches every time the archbishop passes right in front of them. The echoing of bells is a great atmospheric detail that echoes throughout Malat's reminiscences about Manila. He really, really liked the place. He called it a charming city and an enchanted place of sojourn. In one paragraph, he is even moved to write, Oh Manila, my last thought will be of you. Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. For this episode, we're doing something a little different. In our three seasons so far, we've been talking about the turning points and tall tales in the tapestry that we call Philippine history. But what if we step back a bit, take a breather, and ask, what was day-to-day life for the colonizers? This is Season 3, Episode 9, A Day in the Life in Colonial Manila. What was Manila like during the French doctor's visit? To answer that question, we have to rewind the tape more than 60 years in the past to the time of the British occupation. The British colonization of the Philippines may have lasted just two years and never really expanded outside the commercial and shipbuilding centers of Manila and Cavite. But as you can imagine, it had a profound effect on the Spanish psyche. For two centuries, they'd built Manila as a walled city, an enduring and unassailable symbol of Spanish power in the Pacific. Then BAM! Just like that, walls crashing down, British troops swarming in, Spanish women raped in their own houses, the galleon trade put to a halt. When the British returned Manila to Spain, the embarrassed Castilians realized that they'd been too complacent in their defensive plans. So they reshaped the Greater Manila area to ensure that an invasion would never happen again. During their attack, the British had used Manila's own buildings and suburbs in Pueblos and Arabales against it. Houses and bakeries just outside the walls of Intramuros turned into garrison fortifications, while the bell tower of the nearby Church of Santiago became a post for snipers to rain fire on the walled city's defenders. When the Spanish got the city back, they decided, okay, no more buildings outside the walls of Intramuros. The outlying towns would be pushed even further back. As historian Maria Luisa Camagay wrote, On the left bank, the pueblos of Parian, Dilao, Santiago, and San Juan de Bagumbayan all disappear as the area immediately outside the walled city 
was transformed into terrenos adictos a la fortificación, or lands devoted to fortification. You can see the results in a map of Manila drawn up in 1814. The south side of Intramuros, the one facing the Baluarte de San Diego, is completely bare. Prior to the British invasion, Bagumbayan had been a bustling little pueblo. Hence the name, Bagumbayan or New Town. But the Spanish tore it down until it was just a bare field and it would remain that way all the way up to the execution of Rizal. When the Spanish anti-invasion remodeling was done, the little hermitage or ermita would now be the closest suburb to the Spanish walls. Other up-and-coming suburbs were Quiapo, Santa Cruz, and Binondo, all located on the other side of the Pasig River. Maps from 1787 and 1814 showed the rapid development of houses in these pueblos with choice lots right beside the river. This was the prime real estate in those times, the Forbes Park and Bonifacio Global City of the 1800s. Binondo was the booming commercial center, the new home of the enterprising Chinese merchant class who had relocated there from the old ghetto of the Parian. And if you had investments in one place, it makes sense, you know, to have a house nearby, especially when you could only get around by taking a horse-drawn carriage, or by walking. So in nearby Santa Cruz, demand forced real estate prices through the roof, to the point that a foreign visitor complained that rents were just too high. Dr. Jean Mala devotes an entire chapter of his travelogue on the Philippines to these riverside rich. Let's take a look at how the 1% lived in 19th century Manila. The day begins at 7 a.m. or for the late risers, 8 a.m. As soon as you open your eyes, you clap your hands and call for your India servant to bring you your cup of hot chocolate. You lounge around in your bedclothes. If you're a dude, you're wearing light pants and a shirt. And if you're a girl, you have on a saya. You sip your cocoa while smoking a cigar. Once that's done, you go and take a bath. The shower is in a little bamboo hut by the side of the Pasig River. Before you head inside, you wash your head with an infusion of gogo bark. Then, you enter the little hut. Boys and girls take a bath together. It's cool. No malice about it. You have both your clothes on anyway, as you wash. You lift the jug and pour it over your head and then over the rest of your body. Two jugs are saved for this purpose. If you're feeling particularly energetic, you can step outside the little hut and go for a full swim in the Pasig River. There are already other girls there, all good swimmers, crossing to the other side of the river, wearing short red shirts with a tapis over them. Once your bath is done, your India servant returns to wipe you down with a towel, while another brings you breakfast. Rice, ham, fritada, vinegar, jams, cooked fish, pineapples, mangoes. You light up another cigar or chew some betel. It's a good life, but a whole new day awaits. Look, smoking was cool before, but European mannerisms are taking over the colony and it's suddenly considered badui or in bad taste for ladies to walk outside while taking a puff. As Jean Malat writes, It is less common today than it was formerly to see them in this careless dress with a cigar in the mouth for European etiquette is being introduced more and more in Manila. 
So, no smoking for the ladies when they go have their morning walk to visit their friends or maybe take the carriage to head down to the Escolta. It's mid-morning and the street is bustling. You can buy everything you could want there. Suits, dresses, drapery, the latest novelties from Paris. Chinese merchants run most of the shops and also man the stalls at the sidewalk, offering little trinkets for sale. The clock chimes nine. The men head to work. Inside their offices or the custom house or on the port, watching the ships come in, these gentlemen of the colony are dressed all in white, with a vest made of Chinese or English calico. In their workplaces, they have what the hobbits would call a second breakfast. What about breakfast? We've already had it. We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? And of course, after that, they would have another cigar. At 3 p.m., you go home for lunch. A feast awaits you at home. Rice with sinigang, tapa, fried fish, Chinese ham, and various fritadas. On the side are pickled green mangoes in case the sinigang isn't yet sour enough for you. You squat down, and puklias as the Spanish call it, then eat with your hands, taking first from the rice and then from the other dishes. The women are very relaxed, their saya gathered up in between their legs, showing off their feet, which are wrapped up in luxurious slippers that are embroidered in gold or silver. After lunch, of course, you smoke another cigar, then lie down for a siesta. You fall asleep with a cigar in your mouth, ashes dropping to the floor. While you sleep, you embrace a hot dog pillow or have it tucked in between your legs. Of course, you don't call it a hot dog pillow. You call it an abrasador, and it's a must-have cushion for everyone when they sleep. It's 5 o'clock now, and anyone who's anyone in the city of Manila is at the promenade. It's a spectacular place. Behind you are the walls of Intramuros, and in front of you are the wide waters of the bay. Ships of every description pass within this vista. Beyond them is the fortress island of Corregidor, the wide summit of Mount Mariveles in the Bataan Peninsula, as well as the twin islets that have been nicknamed the Nun and the Monk. The clouds flush scarlet and the calm waters glisten beautifully as they swallow up the setting sun. Then, as now, the sunsets are always beautiful over Manila Bay. But the people aren't here to just watch the setting sun. They're here to do some people watching as well. Everyone has put on their finest dress for the occasion. From carriages drawn with two horses in the Demont style, the women disembark wearing delicate dresses of the finest piña or sinamay and flowers stuck into their hair. Polite greetings and besos and manos are exchanged and if there's a new arrival from Spain, they are introduced to everyone else, with the young women asking among themselves in whispers, is this dashing new arrival married? Or is he single and lonely in Manila? Then at 6 o'clock, the church bells ring for the Angelus. The entire world stops. But when the prayer is over, the sweet murmur of a hundred buenas noches and magandang gabis fill the air. Then it's off to visit friends for a cup of hot chocolate with milk from Marikina and biscuits from Pampanga. Or maybe a cup of tea, newly brought in from China, aboard the sampan with two big eyes drawn on the prow.
nightfalls. The Spanish tune body clocks, accustomed to the rhythm of the siesta, mean it's a late night for you colonial sons and daughters. Writes Jean Mala. At 11 o'clock in the evening, almost everybody has gone home. This is when the supper is served, consisting usually of tinola, that is to say, chicken cooked in water, garnished with pieces of pumpkin, then the inevitable rice. If you're not too hungry, you content yourself with a sip of lemon water, leavened with a lump of sugar. 11 o'clock is also the hour when the city gates close for curfew. They would not open again until 5 a.m. the next morning. Before you go to bed, you smoke one last cigar or chew one last piece of betel nut. Then you turn in for the night inside your grand old house by the river. Tomorrow is another day in Colonial Manila. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. References used in this episode are written on the show notes, but I'd also like to express my thanks to my main sources. I relied on Pura Santillan Castrens, translation of Jean Malat's The Philippines, which was published in 2021 by the National Historical Commission of the Philippines. Other useful articles were Christine Duran's Spanish and Mestizo Women of Manila, and Maria Luisa Camagay's Urban Development of Manila during the 19th century. Quotes from sources were read by Anya Ong. Hobbit Audio is from New Line Cinema's The Fellowship of the Ring. The Colonial Department was written and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department.